want to mention a couple of things to you, and then we'll uh, proceed. Number one, this coming Saturday is the third Saturday of the month, so where will we be? Help group at Bartlett this Saturday, third Saturday of the month. If you can be there, um, particularly between 9 and noon, you can get there a little earlier and help set up, or you want to hang around afterwards and help tear down, but uh, this coming Saturday, so at the Bartlett campus, and we, we will need, I know last month we were kind of hurting a little bit for help, and the month before we had a whole lot more than we needed, so if we can hit the happy medium somewhere in there, but bottom line is, even if you go and just walk around, if there's too many people and you're just walking around watching, which is what I tend to do anyway, walk around and flap my gums, then you're going to be blessed just by watching what God is doing. So I really encourage you, if you can be there this, this third Saturday, a couple other things. Number one, or number two, we still are desperately in need of bus drivers whom we pay, and both in the morning and the afternoon, if you want to one shift or the other, contact Chris Ellison or you can give me your information, I'll pass it on. You put it on a connect card, put it in a black box, I'll pass it on to Chris. But uh, we desperately need bus drivers for our after-school ministry, both in Arlington and Bartlett. If you'd like to do that and make a little extra money, which you can turn around and give to me. But uh, if you're retired or if you have time available in the morning or in the afternoon, uh, you'd like to do that, we desperately need that. And if you don't want to do it, just Keep praying that God sends us bus drivers. Next thing, we have a congregational meeting on October 3rd. We leave here and go out to the Bartlett campus and eat lunch, and then we'll have the meeting around 2 o'clock and then just spend Sunday afternoon together, both campuses kind of hanging out together and playing volleyball and other things, just kind of spend the afternoon together as a church family. It's our annual congregational meeting. That's Sunday, October 3rd. If you'll put that on your calendar. And then the last thing I want to mention to you along the way of announcements is, make sure I get it right, okay, uh, on the 19th, two weeks, no, a week from today, we're going to have a new starting point class. What is starting point? Well, whether you've been here for a long time or you're new to the church, you're trying to find out what is a Christ church, being I had a, a lady call me this week and I've known for years and and she said, uh, I know y'all are independent and you're non-denominational. What does that mean? Who are you? And you know what I told her? We don't know. We just kind of hang out. But a lot of times you don't know what a non-denominational church is or an independent church. Well, the starting point will answer those questions. It'll tell you our history, tell you what we believe, why do we have elders, what are we, uh, what are we trying to accomplish, who are we. Six-week course, first three weeks are in Bartlett, the last three are here in Arlington. You get to see both campuses. And so if that's something, and one of our elders, Mike Clay, teaches it, so if that's something that you would like to do just to find out more about what is a Christ church, then that begins next Sunday. And if you'd like to sign up, again, you can put on the Connect card, put it in the box, I'll pass it on to Mike. His info is on the, the uh, bottom of your bulletin on the sermon side. You can contact Mike, and he'll give you the information, or I'll pass it on to him, whatever you'd like to do. But I think you would greatly benefit from it. I know when I first discovered it, gosh, a long time ago, and, and kind of adapt, adapted it. It was written for another group, and I kind of adapted it to uh, Christ Church. And it's been really good. 
just kind of let people know this is who we are, not what you think maybe, or, or maybe it is what you think, but at least then you'll know. It's kind of like joining something. If I'm going to join a club, I'd like to know what they're all about before I join. So um, find out what is a Christ church. Now, finally, before we get into today's lesson or message, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 10. I'll tell you what we're going to do in a moment. Yesterday being the 20th anniversary, I know we've all experienced and thought about, been praying for, 20th anniversary of 9-11, it's, just, uh, we can, it's one of those deals historically in your life where you know exactly where you were and what you were doing, some of you, some of you weren't even here yet, but for those of us who were, you know, like when Kennedy was assassinated, I can tell you exactly where I was in the third grade and what I was doing, which hallway I was in when they told us the they moved us out, and all the teachers were crying and told us the president had been assassinated. And I just, you, you remember those moments. And I remember 9-11, and we were all, we didn't have, obviously didn't have this campus, and we were in the offices at the Bartlett campus, and one of the guys had a TV in his office. And all of us were gathered in that one little office, just, you see that first plane hit the building, and I thought, well, some idiot is falling asleep. How did that happen? And then you see that second one, and the first thing that went through my mind is, oh, my God, somebody is attacking our nation in New York City. And it just like, it, it was amazing, just so surreal. And, and then what's in, happened in the 20 years hence and where we are. And, I, and what I want to do is for us to take a moment and we're not preaching on 9-11 today, but I think it's important. You hear it said over and over, and I watched several uh, people speaking on it yesterday and the whole deal of, of never forgetting. We need to never forget those people and the sacrifice they made, those firemen and, and others, those first responders, just running into that building. Danny and I were talking about it Wednesday night. Just without elevators, just running. Think about carrying all that equipment on your back and running stair after stair after stair to just try to save people's lives and suddenly realizing, probably knowing going in, I'm not going to survive this. And the commitment that they made and their families that are still having to deal with that 20 years later. And we do need to never forget that sacrifice and you know, pray for them, for their families and, and pray for our nation that we realize how desperately we need the one true God to lead our nation, for our, our leaders to turn to him. I still, I guess the one thing I still remember the, besides the buildings is the, when that President Bush sitting in that class with little kids, I don't know what grade they were, and, I, and he's just sitting there and the guy comes up and whispers in his ear, think for a moment, you're President of the United States and you can't react and just see his face and realize what they had just told him. And uh, you see leadership you understand what it is. And so let's take a moment. I just want you to, to, to take a moment of silence and you pray for those people, pray for our nation, and then I'll close us out in prayer and we'll get into God's word. Would you bow your heads with me? Well, our Father, as we bow our heads before you, we pray for our nation that our leaders would bow their heads before you, not 
in a momentary religious act, but in a serious search for guidance, for wisdom, for truth. To be the leaders they were elected to be, to be everything that you, God, want them to be in this greatest of all nations. We're blessed to be Americans. And so, Lord, we pray for those dear families that are still 20 years later, their loved ones, thinking about them and hurting. We pray for them. Pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. If they're not believers, that maybe they would be drawn to what Jesus Christ can do for them. And pray that we, as a people, as Americans, would never forget the sacrifice that their family has made and just continue to lift them up in prayer. And it wouldn't just be this moment that in our daily prayer lives, we would pray for our nation. You command us to pray for our leaders politically. It doesn't matter where you are politically. We're commanded to pray for our leaders, that they would lead. And so, Lord, as Christians, we need to understand that when we pray, we're talking to the one who could do something about it. The God who is there, the God who is all-powerful. We just pray America could be a beacon like it used to be to the world about who God is and what God can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn to John chapter 10. As I mentioned to you last week, a couple weeks before that, what we're going to look at today is tied in with what we've talked about the last couple weeks. So when I'm, I'm not going to go back and redo the whole I am the door. We've talked about that. What we're going to focus on, we're not going to go back and do the whole sheet metaphor. We've already done that. We're going to focus on Jesus' statement in John 10, verse 11. So if you look at that, and we'll walk, begin to walk through it. Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So what we're going to look at is how does that tie in with Jesus' statement we looked at the last couple of weeks, that I am the door. Focusing on Jesus' unique standing in the history of humanity, in the history of time, because he existed before there was time, it was just him, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There was God. In the beginning, God made, God created. Out of nothing before there was time, in the beginning, before there was time, there was the Word. His unique standing, when he says, I am the Good Shepherd, we talked about the whole idea of before Abraham was, I am. His unique standing as the God-man. Not just a great religious leader and a great moral teacher and the greatest of all teachers, the greatest of all leaders, the greatest of all examples, and he is those things. But far beyond that, and most importantly in our lives as Christians, and what we have to communicate to our world is that Jesus is unique. The Greek definite article. He is the, the good shepherd. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. He is the God-man. 100% God and also 100% man at the same time. His, that's why his sacrifice was unique. That's why he could die for the sins of the world. Because he was perfect, sinless, and God. Dying as a substitutionary, atoning, paying the penalty for our sins, for my sins. It's, it's to be very personal. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's the only way I can know God. He's the only way, unique, definite article, unique. He's the only way to salvation. The only way to truth, the, the whole door idea we talked about. He's the only way to life. He's the only way to purpose. When, when we live like in our culture and we're confused and we don't know where to turn, what to do, Jesus Christ can give you meaning, purpose, direction when, you, when you're just absolutely confused, maybe even terrified. He says, I am. It's very personal. 
I was studying this week again for this and for the next uh, sermon I'm going to do, and I was just looking at some stuff. And the Holy Spirit brought me to the passage where Jesus has the disciples gathered around him. You know, he's pouring that last time, and you know, his ministry was three years on the planet, and that last six months in particular, when he just pours himself into these 11 guys that are going to carry on after he's gone. He's got them there together, and they, they were confused. Even in the, last, the Great Commission, we were studying my class this morning, at the Great Commission, it says they were there, and some doubted. He's getting ready to ascend, leave the planet, and still some of them are struggling with doubt. You know what I love about that? They're real. They're like us. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we doubt. But then God used them. To, to turn the world upside down. The Bible says that, and history tells us that. So he gathers, he's got the 11 guys there, obviously Judas is there, but he's not going to be part of it, but the 11 are there. And Jesus says to them, who do men, society, say that I am? What was their answers? Their answers. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're... Moses, some say, some say, many different opinions about Jesus that are familiar to you. So Jesus, and this is why this is so important, what we have to share as Christians. Then Jesus asked them the question that every human being that's ever walked planet Earth or ever will has to answer. He says, who do you say that I am? Not John, not Thomas, not Matthew, not Thaddeus. Who do you, Peter, say that I am? Who do you, Randy, say that I am? My faith is not based on what my mom and dad believed. We talked about young people last week. We were talking to you guys, and it's so important as a teenager, as a young adult, as an adult, as an old man, it's important that I understand that my relationship with Jesus Christ is very personal. Now, we're also part of a corporate body that loves each other, or is supposed to, cares about one another. It's one of the beautiful things I love about our church. We genuinely hurt when another one hurts. We care for each other. We, we want to be there to minister to one another. It's not just go to church. We're part of the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. You're my brother. You're my sister. They're family terms. God didn't choose those by accident. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? It's very personal. I can't get saved. I can't be, as someone once said, a brother-in-law to God. I was doing a funeral years ago, and I do a lot of funerals, and you heard me talk about that, and I love to share the gospel, share the hope that Jesus offers when people are hurting. And this guy comes up to me, and uh, I want to say it was his aunt that had died. I can't remember. No, it was his wife. And he said, well, I appreciate you being here to do the funeral, preacher. My wife had a lot of religion. She had more than enough for both of us. And I didn't say it, but I thought it. I sure am glad I'm not doing your funeral today, bub. I'm not saved because my wife's a devout Christian, and she is. I'm not saved because I'm married into a family of devout Christians, and I did. 
I'm saved because on April 19, 1970, I bowed my heart and asked Jesus Christ to change my life and to save me from my sin. And he did. Now, am I perfect? No, Mary, no, you don't have to say that. Of course not. They struggled. We struggle. But the beauty of understanding who your good shepherd is is that he knows you're going to struggle. That's the whole idea of the metaphor of being a shepherd. We talked about sheep last night. We're not going to go back and redo the sheep thing again. No, we're tired of talking about sheep. But sheep are the dumbest animals that have ever walked the planet or still do walk the planet. They desperately need help. Without help, they'll just eat themselves off a cliff. I read an article two weeks ago about a, a herd. There's like 1,500 of them in Australia. I think it was in Australia. And the shepherd got busy doing something, and they literally ate themselves off a cliff. 400 of them died. You know what happened to the, the other 1,100? They landed on top of the dead ones. But they all ate themselves off the cliff because they're dumb. What do they need? They need a shepherd. What kind of shepherd do they need? They need a good one. And that's who Jesus is. He tells us right here, I'm the good shepherd. Turn to Psalm 23. Probably don't even have to turn to it. I got a feeling you might have memorized it. But turn there with me anyway. I want to show you something. We're not going to exegete Psalm 23, but I want you to see, we're just going to read it, but I want you to see the context in which David writes this psalm. What it says. Psalm 23, which we've all memorized. A lot of non-believers have memorized it. A lot of religious people quote it. But I want you to notice what it says. It's interesting. The metaphor of shepherd runs throughout Scripture and history. Even today, they, they still herd sheep the same way. David was a shepherd. Matter of fact, when David was the one God said is going to be my king, where was he while all the other, the, the, the macho sons were being paraded out and God kept saying to the prophet, no, 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 no. Don't you have another son, Jesse? I got David. He's out with the sheep. You don't want him. Bring him here. And God said, that's the one because he's got a heart centered on me. And by the way, David wasn't perfect. He struggled. Look at Psalm 23 in the very first statement. Remember now, in John 11, when Jesus speaks, his audience is Jewish. And he's got a whole group, we talked about this, we're not going to go back and redo it, a whole group of false shepherds, the scribes and the Pharisees, and then he's got a whole group of all the sheep, and he's saying to them, I don't want you to follow the false shepherd, I want you to follow me because I'm a good shepherd. And I'm not just a good shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. And when he makes that statement, they immediately know he's talking about Psalm 23 amongst other passages, but particularly Psalm 23. What's the first statement in Psalm 23? You don't even have to look at it. What is it? Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Lord would be Greek definite article, meaning how many of them are there? Only one. So look what he says. The Lord is my shepherd. David is writing, praising his God. The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I'm in really good hands. I, don't have, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you, the good shepherd, are with me. Your rod, your staff, 
tools of a shepherd. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're not, again, we're not exegeting Psalm 23, but think what he's saying. saying. He's going to lead me. All the things we talked about last week with the shepherd. He's going to restore me. I don't have to have any fear. You're going to be, he's always going to be with me. He's going to comfort me. My cup's going to overflow. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life on the planet Earth, and I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. See the picture? The Lord is my shepherd, and every day he's going to take care of me. Goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. I will not say it because Mary's here and I'll get in trouble. But all the days of my life mean what? They said it, I didn't, Mary. Did you know that? All the days of my life. I don't know. And my days are numbered, by the way, by the shepherd. When it's time for this sheep to go home, he'll take that rod, that staff, metaphorically, and pull me up, take me home. He takes care of me. All the days of my life, my cup's going to run over. Goodness and mercy will follow me every single day. And then I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, if the Lord is my shepherd, it's a win-win. I can't lose. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Now go back to John 10. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And to his Jewish audience, here's what he's saying. When you read Psalm 23, who's it talking about? Talking about me. I am your shepherd. We talked about this before. When he says, I am, before Abraham was, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the resurrection. On and on. Every time he says that, he's saying, I'm deity. I'm God. I'm Jehovah. I'm Yahweh. I'm Elohim. I'm Elohim. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the guy talking to Moses from the burning bush. So I'm telling you, don't listen to the scribes and the Pharisees. They're false shepherds. Follow me. I'm a good shepherd. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm always going to be with you. And then when you die, I'm going to take you to my house. You can't lose. They understood that. I want you to drop down for a moment to verse 22. I want to show you something. Historically and here in the context of this passage. Look at verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem... And it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And the Jews surrounded him and they said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I'll pause there for a moment. This is about two months later. It's around December. If you are the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. Has he not already done that? Over and over he said, I am God. I'm your Savior. I'm your Messiah. I'm the one David pictured. David was a shepherd, but he was a picture of me. Moses was a picture of me. Types, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. So they say to him, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly, verse 25. Can you imagine Jesus, and I know Jesus didn't sin, 
But if you were to put yourself in Jesus' sandals for a moment, at this point you might want to say what? Can you guys not hear? What is your problem? So Jesus, verse 23, answered them, I told you. And I'm adding the emphasis. I'm sure Jesus was a little kinder than I am. I told you. And you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. I told you. I showed you. I proved it to you. But, verse 26, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You want to be encouraged? Read this over and over again. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now look at verse 30. I and my Father are one. Now, can you be any more plain than that, or any plainer? Let you check out the English grammar. Can, it, can you be any clearer than that? I've joked about this before, and I've joked, but I mean it. There are theologians that say Jesus never claimed to be God. You know what their problem is? What is it? They can't read! How'd they get all their degrees? How'd they get their jobs and seminaries and places like that? You know why they say that? On a very serious note, Jesus is talking to the Jewish, the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees that are challenging him. And here's what he's saying to them. You know better, but you choose not to believe. You're not a sheep even though you know everything I've ever said about sheep, you know everything that God has ever pictured, you know the law backwards and forwards, you've got the psalm memorized, you know, but you choose not to believe you're not of my sheep. Now let me give you the context. Look at verse 22 again. It was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. In 167 B.C., there was a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's like a type of the Antichrist. He claimed to be God. He was a Syrian king. He attacked Jerusalem, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar inside the temple. Not the Holy of Holies, but the other altar. Maybe in the Holy of Holies. He sacrificed a pig to the, to the pagan god Zeus, the Greek god. He forced the high priest to eat they forced the high priest to eat the pig's meat. He turned the chambers of the temple into a brothel. In other words, it became, for a period of time, a house of prostitution, the temple in Jerusalem. He outlawed, literally having possession of the Holy Scriptures, was against the law. That was 167 B.C. Two years later, 165 B.C., there was a Jewish leader called Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer. He overthrew the Syrian army and he rededicated the temple on the 25th of Kislev, Jewish month. That would be our December. Please note, that, not note the date, the 25th of December. The Jewish people celebrated the victory for eight days and it was decreed that the Feast of Lights or also known as, verse 22, the Feast of Dedication, also known today as Hanukkah, began. The celebration every year 
around that time in December of what Judas Maccabeus did. And it was customary during this festival of Hanukkah, still is, to ask questions. Why did the shepherds of Israel allow these abominations to happen? And again, this is about two months later, and they approach Jesus at the festival of lights of dedication or Hanukkah and say, are you the Messiah? What does Jesus say? I told you back two months ago. I made it real clear to you. I am the good shepherd. Now, let's go to verse 11. Let's begin to walk through this a little bit. So he says in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. I mentioned earlier, David was a shepherd picture of Christ. Moses was called a shepherd, types of Christ. Several, several, you'll see it over and over again in the Old Testament. I want to read you, to follow along with a couple of verses. We're going to start in Ezekiel 34. We looked in Ezekiel 34 last week at false shepherds. But I want you to see what God says in Ezekiel 34. Let's see, we're going to start. All right, we're going to start in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. This is the prophet Ezekiel. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered in cloudy and dark days. I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them, my servant David, a type of Christ. He shall feed them, be their shepherd. They shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord. In Isaiah, the Bible says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. One last example from that, and then we'll move on. In Mark chapter 10, you don't have to turn there. The Bible says, as Jesus was going out on the road, somebody came running to him. He knelt down in front of Jesus, and he asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might, may inherit eternal life? Good teacher. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. What did Jesus want that guy to acknowledge so he could have eternal life? You're calling me good. Why? Because the only one who's truly good is whom? God. I'm the good shepherd. Now back to verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The word in Greek means, I'm no, means noble, worthy, the ideal, the model of perfection, the one who is preeminently excellent. Not just a shepherd, but the preeminently excellent shepherd, the good one. And notice how Jesus puts it, the context of what's going on here. It's the good shepherd, look at verse uh, 12. 
a hireling or a hired hand. He's not the shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. The shepherd owns the sheep. We just saw that in the Old Testament. He sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep, and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. What you're going to see in these verses through verse 21 is Jesus is presenting now the contrast between the good shepherd and the hireling. In verses 1 through 10, Jesus presented the con contrast between himself as the door and the Pharisees who were, quote, thieves and robbers. Now he's saying, I'm the good shepherd. They're like a hireling. Look at verse 13. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. And he does not care about the sheep. In other words, if he's a hireling and he doesn't care about the sheep, why is he tending the sheep in the first place? Just for the money. Just for the money. And unfortunately, in the United States of America, particularly in the last 35, 40 years, our country is replete, full of hirelings. People who simply want to use the Bible and the name of Jesus Christ to milk people out of money for their own personal gain. And the Bible, by the way, says that will be the case in the last days, that you'll have false teachers come along who are only in it for themselves. So Jesus is going to present the contrast between the good shepherd and the hireling that the hireling in the specifically context, immediate context, the Pharisees, they're unfaithful and they're not good. What's the opposite of good? Very good. The opposite of good is bad. It's good, it's bad. Shepherds. I'm the good shepherd. He's already told them the Pharisees are what? Thieves, robbers, and now they're hirelings. They're only in it for the money. Think about it. You go back through and read the Gospels. When Jesus encounters the Pharisees, he has his toughest language for them because they are manipulating the people for their own personal gain. They're using them, lying to them, abusing them spiritually for their own personal benefit. And that's why Jesus used that tough language with them that you see in Matthew 23. Your snakes. You're going to hell, you're children of Satan. I mean, powerful stuff. Because they were lying and manipulating the sheep. So let's look at the good shepherd. We're now to number one on your handout. You proud of me? We'll get a little ways. You're number one on your handout. Here we go. The good shepherd, what does he do? First thing he does, and we all know this, but I want to make sure you see it in context. What does a good shepherd do? Number one, he dies for the sheep. He dies for the sheep, or he died for the sheep. Look at verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. His death was selfless. It was never about him. For example, Jesus said it, but we'll just answer the question. For how many of his own sins did he die? Zero. For how many of his, his, of his horrible works was he punished for? Zero. His death was in no way about himself. It was 100% selfless. Isaiah 53, the Bible says, all we like sheep, there it is again, 
have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all, sin of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. And repeatedly in this passage in John, look at verse 15. 15. The Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Verse 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Over and over, I lay down my life, I lay it down, I lay it down, I willingly, volitionally choose to die for the sheep. Jesus said, make it real simple, he said, I came to serve, and then I came to die, because I love you. The book of Hebrews, the Bible says, we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, I love this passage, it's just, it seems like such a, a paradox, but it shows you the beauty of Jesus' death. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he finished his job. We'll talk more about that next week. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He came and he finished it. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. He paid the debt. Canceled in full. That's what it means in Greek. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Let's pause for a moment. What possible joy could there be in cruci being crucified? Have you ever read about it? It is the most horrible way human beings have ever invented to kill another human being. Over a period of time and horrific torture, ultimately your heart explodes because you can't get up and you can't breathe. The joy set before. What's the only possible joy that could be set before Jesus? And man, when you finally grip this, it changes your life. What's the only joy set before Jesus that possibly, possibly could have been joy that he was enduring while being crucified? What's the only thing? It said he was fulfilling the plan of redemption because he loves us. God sent him to do something and he did it because he loves us. As we started out today talking about, you need to make that personal because he loves you. Every time I pray, every day in my prayer time, whenever it might be, different periods of time during the day, I always find myself, if not beginning, ending, I always find myself just pausing in the middle of whatever I'm praying for and just I'm overwhelmed by the fact God loves me. Why me? I know me. And I know my sin. And yet God says, Randy, I love you. And I know I love you, and I'm going to pay your debt. You, can't, you owe this debt, you can't pay, I'm going to pay it for you. 
and then I'm going to give you life, both now and forever. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. In context, what he's saying is, in response to your salvation, this is what you should do. You should simply say, here I am, Lord. I'm going to be your living sacrifice, that oxymoron. I love what one preacher said about that. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? It keeps crawling off the altar. We need to understand, we're not perfect. You're going to let God down. How do I know? Because I know you, and I know me, and I let him down on a regular basis. And yet, what does he say? I love you, Randy. Let's don't do that again. Think about how much, I love the way the Bible puts this. If you as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know? There's a reason he chose that metaphor. We understand parenting and grandparenting and that relationship, how special it is. And God says, I love you exponentially more than you'll ever be able to love your children or grandchildren. Wow. How special is that? So he died for his sheep. Jesus himself said in his earthly ministry, greater love has no man. Then he laid down his life for his friends. And then he proceeded to do what? Lay down his life. Willingly. His death was selfless. Secondly, it was sacrificial. Verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The word for. He gives them, gives his life for the sheep. Greek, it literally means on behalf of. Now please get this because it's even... Even in churches today, Protestant churches and some Catholic churches and churches all over our country and I guess around the world. Yes, Jesus died, but he did not die. Because, and again, some churches, they don't get it. He didn't die as a martyr. He didn't die as a moral example. What did he die as? the substitutionary atoning sacrifice to pay my sin debt. There have been a lot of martyrs, and, and, and we can admire them, and we should. Think back, back, back to 9-11, to those men, women who run into that building, and, they, and they're dying to try to save other people. We need to admire that and remember it, and thank God for that. World War II, the Normandy beaches, all. The, the, those, all those young men that just hit those beaches knowing we're not going to live beyond today. 18, 19, 20-year-old kids knowing this is my last day on planet Earth, but I want to fight for freedom. We need to remember that and never forget. We need to admire and appreciate that. But that's not why Jesus died. He died so we can go to heaven. He died so we can be free. He died so we can know peace and hope and joy. Not as a moral example, not as a martyr, not someone to be thankful for, even though we are. He died to redeem. He was, he was the sacrifice. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, God, he who knew no sin became sin for us, 
same word, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The only way I can stand before God and be allowed into his presence is because I'm in Christ. No other way. That's what he said. First Peter, the Bible puts it this way. He did not spare his own son. God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us. He delivered him up for us all. How shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Excuse me, that's in Romans 8. And then 1 Peter says this, who himself bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By his stripes you were healed spiritually. The angel announcing to Joseph and the shepherds the birth of the Messiah said this, your wife, Joseph, will bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To the angels, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior, Christ the Lord. Last point today, and then we're going to be done. Verse 12. Jesus' death was sufficient. This is so important. So many theologians just don't get it right. Verse 12. A hireling is not the shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. He sees the wolf come in and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. And he doesn't care about the sheep. Jesus' death was sufficient. Number one. He owns the sheep. They're his. He bought us with his blood. He paid the price. Again, it is finished. It's interesting, the Latin, in Latin, the language that obviously the Romans used, Latin, the word for money, I took four years of Latin, but I never got this far. The word for money and the word for sheep are incredibly, they're very, very similar, root word, because in the Roman economy, wool equaled wealth. So that's the way they described it. We're valuable to God. The shepherds would notch their individual sheep, kind of like branding cattle. They'd put a notch on them so they would know, I belong to that shepherd. He is mine. That's my sheep. As we saw earlier, Jesus, they know the shepherd's voice because he knows them by name. Jesus purchased us with his blood. Acts 20, the Bible says, Take heed to yourselves. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, giving them their job as elders. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders. You shepherd the church of God. He purchased it with his own blood. In Ephesians, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In Revelation John writes, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood. Romans 5, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. Jesus' death was sufficient. He purchased us with his blood. Why is this important? I'm going to stop with this.
point today. Why is this important? Again, there's a whole group of theologians in our country. It's always been this way. It's always been a struggle. They don't call it this, but this is what they're teaching, that Jesus' death was not sufficient. Back in the early church, they were called Judaizers. Basically, they would say this, Jesus died on the cross, he's the Messiah, but you also have to keep the law. You have to do this, 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 and this. Years ago, a preacher wrote a great book, a little book, which I could call his name right now. It was a great book. The title of the book was, How Do You Ever Know You're Good Enough? If I'm basing my salvation on my good works, how do I know I'm ever good enough? You know what the answer is? You're not good enough. That's why the Bible says, how many have sinned? All have sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of God. Everybody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't get there on your own. That's why Jesus came and died in your place. Substitutionary, atoning sacrifice. It was sufficient. Nothing else is. And my good works have nothing to do with my buying my salvation. My good works are done because I have been bought. I've been changed. So I live like Christ. I don't do good things so God will let me in. I can't do enough good things for God to let me in. All our righteousness, according to the Bible, is filthy rags. It ain't buying you nothing. That's a direct Hebrew quote. It ain't buying you nothing. Jesus bought it, though. It's sufficient. He's the good shepherd who dies for his sheep. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled, as always, when we think about who Jesus Christ is, our shepherd. We're humbled because he is the good shepherd, the only one capable of taking care of the sheep. He paid our price with his own blood. He died for my sins so I could be set free. I could be a sheep with a shepherd, the shepherd. So I pray for us as believers that we'd be excited about that, thrilled every day in our prayer time. Just say thank you, Father, for loving me. I know I'm unworthy, but I know I'm your boy. I'm your little girl. You love me. Thank you, Father. Thank you for being my father. Now I want to go out and brag on you. I want to share who you are with other people so they can really understand who you are instead of who they think you are. We thank you for Jesus. Without him we have no hope. With him we have all hope. He's our shepherd. We close out our time together today just meditating on who our good shepherd is. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand if you would while we wrap our time up.